John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1323.SS0701, certificate number 31961, the town of Bent Necks. Und diesen Schuhdeal, den brauche ich schon gar nicht. Du verzichtest auf den Schuhdeal? Junge, was ist los mit dir? Du spinnst. Naja, vielleicht doch. Uh, do you have any sports loyalties? Like to teams? Yeah, or no, to, um, yeah, for, first to teams. Let's, I'm, I'm loyal to the idea of sports. Yeah. I just want everyone to have a good time out there and, and maybe to um, get some good cardio in instead of sitting still, mm-hmm. looking at their screens. That's mm-hmm. what I'm loyal to. Don't want anybody to get hurt. I have a jersey that just says, I hope no one gets hurt. <laughs> and the, I have one that says, don't yell zero. at me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but what about style? What about sports style? We've talked before that I feel like you should not wear jerseys, um, sports jerseys, if you're not at a game or if you're not five years old, but how do you, you remember the tennis shoe wars of the, of the late eighties, early nineties. Those were funny. Cause they seem to be built largely on, uh, on technology as, as much as aesthetics, you know, these are the sneakers that will have the gel in them that let you jump a little higher. These ones have the pump that will, do you remember when sneakers had all these moving parts? Oh yeah. And so some of it was like, well, which ones do Jordan wear? Which ones do, you know, Penny wear or whatever, but it very quickly became, you know, which ones have the latest space age polymers. Do you, do you remember kind of what, what point in your life that, uh, that started to be part of the culture? Yeah, that's mid to late 80s. A lot of my friends started to play basketball, so there was a lot of that. And I had, and I didn't care about sneakers, so I had the lame, like I had LA Gears. Oh, yeah. And they would just laugh at me. LA Gears, those are what Kareem wears. Sure, British Knights. Kareem's like 40. <laughs> uh, but I didn't really care that much. Like we were living in Korea, so you could get knockoff whatever. You get, you know, Nikes that fell off a truck because they had a stitching error or something right but my friends really wanted the real ones they would go to the states and pay 200 bucks for the new jordans or whatever was there any brand that you particularly identified with did you ever wear ralph Lauren shirts or uh fred perry uh, black fred perry polos anything like that i don't i don't remember 
I don't think so. Well, even now, I mean, do you wear Levi's? Is there anything, any brand that you're like, yep, that's the one. I don't yeah, have to think I have, about it. I have some Levi's loyalty. I've got some, I've got some pretty strong Uniqlo loyalty, but that's pretty new. More convenience than anything else. Yeah, cheap and and basically sized for a perfect medium. One, like you, one stop shopping. I'm gonna get some socks. I'm gonna need a windbreaker mm-hmm. and a uh, suit and underpants. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They have it all. They can do it all. And you never went through a Timberland phase or anything like that. I, I can't. I, I can't picture you in in combat boots or or really boots of any kind. Have you ever worn? Boots? I don't think I even had a pair of Doc Martens uh, at the height of having a pair of Doc Martens. Mindy, Mindy has a, Mindy has a pair of Doc Martens still that you know have survived intact because, of course. Yeah, all the Doc Martens are still the the future listeners are all wearing Doc Martens right now because they all survived the Doc Martens from the eighties. They all survived the nuclear war, the atomic wars. Well, you know, Doc Martin, I'm afraid, makes uh, shoes overseas now. But what I have learned is that the Vietnamese uh, Doc Martens are actually better than the ones made in England. Now that's going to disappoint a lot of people to hear, but the shoe people, the people that like review. Shoes are like, yeah, the ones from Vietnam are actually pretty darn I just good. don't like reading reviews because you'll feel bad about any product. Yeah, these Weber grills used to be pretty good, but then they replaced the whatever igniter with the whatever. And I'm just yep. like, well, I, I guess I can't get that. Nope, can't go back. Tell me what to get. Sure, you, Someone. Have, to get, have, to get, you have to go back and buy the tungsten one. Gotta that's go sitting, back in time. It's on Craigslist. So no, I. but you, you do have a lot more... Um, brand awareness i think a lot of it is i have a pretty i have a philosophical objection to spending uh a lot of money on clothes and honestly it probably doesn't serve me well because maybe if i had just bought you know if i buy one well-made shirt that would last me longer than a cycle of yeah three three uniqlo button downs yeah the uniqlo shirts start to pill after the third wash and then yeah the seams all come undone they break down into their component elements (laughs) while you're wearing it not to slag Uniqlo, but I have a lot of brand awareness because I uh, buy my clothes at thrift stores. So as you have to, yeah, as part of that, you know, as part of the challenge of of wading through six hundred shirts of different, completely different provenances, brands are one of the ways that you can kind of do a quick scan and go, oh, Uniqlo, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to uh, linger here on this shirt because I know I can get it for five dollars at the store. But if you see something that is from a, a brand that you know is like either in in days past a premium brand or a department store brand or a brand you can't get anymore. I mean, all these things are clues that help you as you're sorting through kind of go, oh, I'm going to take a second look. And that's what thrifting is all about. It's that what, how do you, if you've got 50 second looks that you're going to give 50 different things in this thrift store of 10,000 items. Um, well, how are you going to put those 50 looks to work? And you got to get fast and efficient. You got to have like the four leaf clover people. You got to know what you're, what you're looking for. That's right. I think I could get into that actually. I think I have the potential cause I like browsing for things and I like rare finds. Yeah. I just don't have any, I never put in the time to actually learn what I was looking at when it came to clothes. Whereas I can do it with old books, for example. Yeah, exactly. The The ability to go into a bookstore and scan and recognize, and then, you know, very quickly know, I'm going to take that one down and look at the title page. Yeah. And then the title page is going to tell you a lot about whether you want to keep going or I, not. You can, tr- your eye just becomes trained for it. Yeah. Maybe that's what I'm going to do in my fifties. I'm going to get really into Goodwill. Well, and then, and it, a lot of it is self-education, right? Because you, there's no manual and no one ever takes you out 
no one who knows thrifting is ever going to take you under their they wing don't and want say, you to. let me show you how to find all the things competition right before I find them. But yeah, you learn and, and I've got, I've got brands that in a thrift store, I, you know, identify as like, oh, this is one of the brands that I, uh, that I search for, but that brand is still available today in real stores. You can buy them new and I would never consider going into one of their stores and buying a new product. Well, you're getting it for a third the price. That's well, a lot less than that. But else. also the idea, like you were saying, that the old ones were made out of tungsten and these new ones are made out of aluminum. Um, that feeling that like Abercrombie and Fitch clothes from the 1950s and 60s are like absolutely top shelf. Abercrombie and Fitch clothes now are, are um, you know, I wouldn't use them to, to, to pack a vase. You, and you mean, do you have to find ones that have survived well despite their age? Or yes. are they so good that like a 60, any 60 year A&F shirt is better than a new one today? But both things. I mean, anyone that has survived 60 years has been hanging in someone's closet and, you know, the old man died and nobody cleaned out the house type of thing. Um, even if he wore it for 15 years. It's still going to be in better it's shape. Still than in better shape than something that's you know that's just made out of out of plastic thread. And what if he spilled a lot of mayo on himself when he ate? Like I'm asking for a friend. Well, that's the thing. You you flip. That's you, you're giving a second look to the shirt. It doesn't mean you're pulling it out and putting it in your your bastic. You stop and you look at it and you go, aha, I see. And then you have to tell whether it's a good one or not because a lot of them are. Yeah, they've got mustard all. Are the cuffs frayed? Is there mustard on the front? Right, right. It's harder to do with shoes and. The reason is that shoes just wear yeah. a lot worse, and shoes have people stinky feet in them. Um, th- but there, there are wonderful thrift store shoe finds. Uh, it's just not the first place you look, um, because you're really in a case like that, looking for a pair of shoes that that were worn. Because there, there are plenty of of shoes, and often it's the nice shoes that you only wear on rare exactly. occasions. Yeah. So you've got. Grand, grandpa's Aldens that he had custom made in 1950 and he only wore them 40 times in his life. But work shoes or sneakers, good luck. Yeah, and any any shoe that's been made in the last 20 years is just going to crumble. But as you as you know and already said, the market for used Air Jordans or or especially old Air Jordans that haven't been worn, but even worn Jordans uh, or tennis shoes of all kinds, you know, they they command a pretty penny. And my son, my son went through a sneakerhead phase, I think, shortly before his vinyl phase, which was before his Pokemon phase. He's got some acquisitive stages where he would, you know, he knew what the nice shoes were and you you gotta have one to rock and one to stock. But we checked it. We went down to Eugene to look at the university of Oregon and we checked into one of these, uh, kind of university themed alumni themed hotels you know and this was in eugene so there's a big duck in the lobby and the whole front the wall behind the cafe and the whole desk where you check in is nothing but it's just nikes wall to wall because eugene is track town and phil knight poured a ton of money into u of o and my son's eyes just popped and he's you know some of them are in good shape and some of them are not but he was like those are 80 dollars. those are 880 (laughs) dollars. like he knew just looking at these, you know, which were the nice shoes. And it seemed like he was maybe planning some kind of a heist. Yeah, I bet he's not the first. I don't want to give people ideas, but uh, this hotel in Oregon seems like it has a lot of rare Nikes just 
Mm. I guess, I guess, a unguarded. Well, it's not unguarded. What's, what's less unguarded than a hotel check-in desk. There's, yeah. It's the one place on earth where there's always somebody <laughs> at 4am. Yeah. But the person that's at the check-in desk at 4am, are they willing to risk their life just to, just to guard against the 15 tennis shoes getting stolen? Uh, you're, you're pausing a guy with a Nixon mask and a gun. That's right. I want to come in from the ceiling into an empty room, <laughs> replace all the shoes with like clever counterfeits right. from, from my, Korean childhood and be gone before anyone even knows. Like twenty years go by before they find out there was a heist. You're you're just sneaking under those lasers in your super tight uh, yoga pants. I'm Catherine Zeta Jonesing <laughs> under lasers. Maybe that's what I should have. I should have had some some really high maintenance problem at the desk about uh, how the pillows in the room are too ding, soft. Ding, ding, One's ding, too ding. soft and too hard. And meanwhile, Dylan sidling under and uh, yeah, grabbing, getting that. the nice Jordans. I, I remember, you know, I, I was in high school, junior high and high school, before the big sneaker craze, but but sneakers were definitely on everybody's radar at that point. And part of it, I think my first awareness was the rise of Nike. It's got to be Nike in America. Because we're from the Northwest and Nike is a, or a Portland, Oregon company. And just the arrival of Nike on the scene and its and and its transition or its its um, evolution from and and really quick evolution from being just a kind of shoe that was being made on a waffle iron by a kook to being a global phenomenon, um, it was pretty exciting because the Northwest was only known for lumber, fish, and, and airplanes suicide. and suicide. And now, and Portland was known for just lumber. It didn't even have uh, fish or airplanes. It didn't even have a suicide yet. <laughs> so it, uh, it, uh, do you mean suicide uh, in the sense of all the pops put together <laughs> at the roller rink? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm going to mix a suicide. Yeah. Uh, we should talk about that someday, a graveyard slash suicide slash whatever the regional name you had it. You yeah, I didn't know there were regional names. Yeah, it's 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 one of those. But they're like, all death related. Yeah, it's that's, one that's of, a little ominous. It's one of the because what a way to go, right? <laughs> Eating root beer that tastes like grape soda. But in Atlanta, they still call it Coke. It's what, what kind of Coke? Graveyard Coke. Graveyard Coke. But so Nikes became very fashionable. But you know, we were I, I was uh, I was the youngest uh, boy in a tennis family, so I inherited a lot of. Rod lavers and sort of Adidas uh, tennis shoes, and they when, were called tennis shoes. My mom still calls shoes. them tennis shoes or tenny runners. Tennies, tennies. We laughed at my mom when she said tennies. Tenny runners, I guess, are tennis shoes that you can also run in. But because running was a new fad, Nike had not yet invented the running shoe, which <laughs> right. is funny for anybody younger than Gen X to understand, or in a weird way, invent running <laughs> right as a thing that you would go do. Now that I've got these space age NASA shoes, I guess I. I guess I could get over there a lot faster. I mean, unless you were a British prep school student that was running on a beach in order to beat the four-minute mile, why else would you go running? Yeah. Uh, I guess Americans were still eating a diet of, of uh, that, that kept us like a jerky-like toughness. Yeah, pork, pork, and pork. Uh, and it wasn't until we just we got enough high fructose corn syrup into our diet, from, probably from all the suicides at the roller rink, <laughs> that we had to invent running. Yeah, it was a it was a fitness craze of the seventies, and and Nike capitalized on it. But it was it was not until I was a freshman in high school that um, Nikes, those those original sort of white Nikes with a red swoosh, became uh, the shoe to have. And my mom would not pay the 
$80 or whatever they were. All moms time. thought that was insane. Insane money. And so she bought me the Stadia version at, um, you know, the shoe locker. That was your version of the LA Gears. And it was, oh, it was before, it was before the sports locker. It was before, you know, you yeah. bought your sports equipment at a, at either a sports store or the department store. Go to Montgomery Ward to so get you some tennies. I had the white shoes with the little red whale that kind <laughs> of looked like an upside down stripe and it was not cutting it. You got to run fast enough that people think it might be a swoosh or an Adidas. Drop. Right, right. And, and and I did not run that fast. But but the, so the Nikes really dominated in those early days of high school. I remember Reebok even being uh, like kind of looked down upon. Yeah. Because it was not, you know, I'm a little younger than you. Those were not Nikes. No, and Reebok kind of had a reputation of being an aerobics shoe. Like that was a Jane Fonda shoe originally. Mom shoe. Yeah. And uh, New Balance also, I think New Balance were considered pretty great shoes at first. And then they became like dad walk around the lake shoes. I wear New Balance when I hike. Your dad, you walk around the lake. that's That's my demographic. Yeah. But when Adidas really arrived on the scene uh in my life in my high school life was uh with the uh, with the i guess simultaneous arrival of run dmc and run dmc's real identification with adidas shoes they mentioned them in their tunes they were a, a major part of their their onstage costume you know run dmc dressed all in black with black Homburg hats and then white Adidas with black stripes, often with no shoelaces. And it was such a, such an impact the way they talked about the shoes as though it was a, I mean, without Adidas on run DMC wouldn't take the stage. And that just introduced into the world, I think an awareness of, of a shoe brand being a thing that brand as lifestyle. Yeah. As lifestyle and, and as a way of communicating that, you know, by wearing shell toes, you were saying something about what you listened to, who you, who you were, who you, who you, um, it was a, it was a way of, it was a, a kind of colors, right? It was, uh, I was wanted to confirm this. I, I thought that my Adidas was a single for them, it and was. it was. My Adidas. It's a rallying cry. It was, and and it was, you know, and it it began a whole association of shoes with hip hop. Um, probably came out of b boy culture already. Right, right. right. Uh, break dancing. I mean, originally hip hop had no kind of fashion component. It was, you know, it was about, it was about turf, and it was about. Uh, like a style of rhyme. Yeah, lyrical dexterity. Um, but then, you know, the 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 shoes added this whole other element to it. I, I remember wearing Timberlands um a lot growing up as and they were kind of just like waffle stomper or boat shoes. But then Timberlands became a big like fashion item in hip hop and also like they were I, I, I was in Europe one time and Timberlands were everywhere. Just Timberland brand was used as a, it was almost, it almost looked like a dollar sign the way it was used. <laughs> like people would, would sign their checks with like their name and then the Timberland logo. It was pretty weird. Can you imagine Run DMC's eyes just popping out of their heads when they first got their 
first box of free merch from Adidas. I know. Because yeah, Adidas must have hooked those guys up once they realized what they were, how much product they were moving. When, when we were on tour, we actually got invited to the, uh, invited after hours to the Doc Martin store and, and, uh, and told, you know, go around the store and take any two pairs of Docs that you want. This pays for itself. Musicians you, wearing our stuff. That's right. You guys are on, rock and roll on tour. So here you go. Pretty nice. You know, there's nothing better than swag. Really nothing better. Not a not a happy marriage, not not when your your team wins the Super Bowl swag. But it's got to be good. Bag of free stuff. Isn't most of the free stuff you uh, I honestly most of the free stuff I get I I immediately just think what am I going to do with this? Well, yeah, cuz you, you get all the fleece jackets that are branded with whatever tech company you're speaking in front of. <laughs> I think as you move further up in show business, like if you go to the Oscars, the swag bags are like, "Would you like a Rolex? Would you like these?" You know, $2,500 shoes, figures. Not at that level. The people who need it the least, it should go the other way around. The swag should be the worst at the highest levels. It should, that should be all the trade show stuff. Like, would you like a ballpoint pen that says the Oscars? <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, at Bonnaroo, they're giving all the bands Rolexes. Exactly. That would be nice. That would be nice. Um, well, so the rise of Nike was pretty, uh, had a pretty profound effect on uh, on like the sports clothes, sports gear universe. And Nike responded to to uh, the Adidas kind of hip-hop connection by really making a strong connection culturally through basketball and through uh, various other, you know, means to become kind of the dominant shoe of the sneaker collector universe. Spike Lee did it. Thank you, Spike. That's right. It's got to be the shoes. He was right. But, you know, and so so Nike now is the global leader in sports apparel, the largest sports apparel company by far. But until the 1980s, that wasn't true. And uh, the second place sports apparel company in the world and the largest in Europe is Adidas or Adidas. Adidas. Named for, they say it that way because it was named for Adi Dossler. He, he, for some reason, after World War II, a lot of a lot of Adolfs went by Adi. Yeah, well, Adi Dossler uh, always went by Adi. It was a family nickname. Oh, was that true? Yeah, and um, Adi Dossler was uh, the youngest of four kids, born to a cobbler and his wife, who was a laundress. A cobbler who, who lived in Franconia, you know, a kind of like near near to Bavaria. Uh, in southern Germany. We should still have cobblers. Yeah. Well, Phil Knight is a cobbler. There were a couple of cobblers still in Seattle until very recently, and one of them got displaced up on Capitol Hill by the Uncle Ike's Pot Store, and there was such community outcry that, um, oh, there were two competing pot stores across the street from one another, and one of them was going to kick out the like the old cobbler guy who was the son of the original cobbler guy. And I used to take my shoes to him. His store was just a, just a mess. You couldn't believe that he could find anything. But he always fixed my shoes and did a great job. Because I would buy shoes at thrift stores that needed to be resold. I guess, yeah, that's one corollary of everything getting junkier is you don't, the economy doesn't make sense to pay people to repair them. Anymore. Yeah, that's right. And, that, and that's the wonderful thing about buying a pair of shoes that are, you know, like some Cordovan shell uh Shoes that'll last you for another hundred years if you put soles on them. You were keeping that guy in business. 
But uh, but Uncle Ike's pot shop, I think, made a little corner inside the the marijuana store where this guy continues to to repair shoes. Oh, really? As a kind of gesture maybe, to the community. Maybe now at a much slower speed. Yeah, or a much more iry speed. <laughs> but uh, Adi was uh, the youngest of four kids who were, um, their parents were Christoph and Pauline Dossler, and their four children were Fritz, born in 1892, Marie, born in 1894, Rudy, uh, short for Rudolf, mm-hmm. born in 1898, and then Adi, born, uh, short for a- Adolf, born in 1900. They all dropped their Alfs. They, d- they dropped the Alf, and that, is a, that was a popular move, I think, even, even before the war. You know, Adolf Hitler calling himself Adolf, it was very formal. Yeah, he should have gone by Adi. They might have won the war. Adi Hitler. They're living in Herzogen Aurach. Germany. That doesn't seem very likely. Herzogen Aurach. Do you think you ever, if you live in a place with a five-syllable name, do you ever say it, or do you do you think they just uh, say round here? I bet they say Herzy or Herzo. Uh, We we'll probably hear from we'll probably hear from someone who will tell us. Um, Herzogen Herzogen Aurach is the name of the town, and this will come up. A lot because oh, Herzogen Aurach. I'm, I'm so excited to say this a lot. Herzogen Aurach uh, is uh, it ends up being the the site of most of the rest of our story, the titular town of our of our tale. Uh, so the 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 original Christoph um, kind of taught himself uh, cobbling because his original um, his original profession, which which was uh, textiles, had kind of Fallen out of um, it, fallen out of favor in this region. They weren't a big textile manufacturer anymore. But shoes started to become a. It became a center of of shoe manufacture. You know, shoe. I guess in the in the nineteenth century, manufacture is probably a little bit of a little bit of a big word. Shoes were still handmade Somebody's and stitching them. Yeah, custom made. But Christoph taught himself how to make shoes, and his wife took in laundry. And um, and from an early age, Adi, the youngest, was kind of a sports-oriented kid. He liked to play all the different games. And watching his father make shoes, he had, you know, he just was kind of inspired uh, to suggest innovations like, oh, you know, this would be much better for football if you put a little thing over the top. And you know, his dad's making shoes for a living. He doesn't have time for this you know, the shenanigans of his son. So his son kind of, Adi, gradually you know, teaches himself the trade, although he's apprenticed as a baker hmm. um, and uh, never showed any interest in, in baking. It's a different kind of cobbler. Uh, that's right. Mm, a delicious, a delicious cobbler. Uh, but he, he kind of teaches himself the shoemaking trade and um, and is playful with it. And he doesn't even think of it as a trade. I think he was resigned to baking but he's building shoes for himself. Because for his, it's a hobby. Yeah, for his own kind of sporty, like, oh, what if I put, you know, this, that, and the other on top of these shoes? What if I strapped them down? What if I, what if I uh, laced them this way or stitched them that way? And so he was, you know, always kind of uh, innovating with with footwear. And his other, his other, like, um, 
siblings didn't really take any interest in it, but it wasn't until around World War One when the older the the older two siblings, Fritz and and Rudy, got conscripted into uh, into the army, and of course, as we know, Germany lost. Adi went into the army right at the end. Didn't see, didn't really see action. But they came back to their town, and there was an incredible famine of well, not only of food but of supplies. There was there were there was no leather available. There was no there were no raw materials available at all. Right. And at this point, Adi kind of makes the decision to leave leave baking behind, and at the age of nineteen, starts a shoemaking company, and he's making shoes with found materials. He's basically taking the leather out of discarded military equipment. He's using rubber from old tires and he's, he's stitching together shoes. And he starts a company that is specifically making sports shoes. If you can think about like organized sports in the pretty new 1990 or I'm sorry, 1919. Yeah. These would have been, you know, sports were either the I mean, kind of the a distraction for the well-to-do, or the uh, kind of hard scrabble street sports. But there wasn't, you know, a culture of sports in the same way. It was an aristocratic thing. There was mountain climbing, and then there was everything else. Not even mountain climbing didn't even really exist uh, in the same way, unless you were. What were they been playing? Tennis, soccer. They were already playing soccer. Yeah, tennis, soccer. I guess. Uh, um, yeah, like cat kicking, I think, was big at the time. His company was called Sportfabrik Gebrüder Dazzler. Mm-hmm. And it was short, they shortened it to Geda. And he started making shoes. And at, at that point, his brother Rudy, his older brother, older by two years, joined the company. And the two of them kind of, uh, you know, burbled along making shoes and and, and again, spending time with with Adi as the creator and Rudy as the salesman uh trying to get their shoes into the hands of people that were playing sport as a, a you know making sort of innovative shoes out of different kinds of material it's funny there's a Wozniak and a Jobs already there's yeah. there's like one of them who knows how to who knows the product and the other one who's into the relationship yeah the engineer and the salesman and they partner with a local, uh, you know, a local uh, metalsmith, and they get him to make little spikes that they attach to the bottom of the shoes. And they're the first football shoe. They're the first oh, spikes. They invented, yeah. they invented those cleats, huh? Yeah, the first cleats, basically. Um, but it's really uh, in the 1930s where they start to kick into gear. And that's where Adolf Hitler really comes into the picture because the brothers recognize um, in the rise of the Nazis, that there is a new focus, a new emphasis on sport as a oh, right. way of, of the young fit Aryan youth. That's right. That's the future it, it, of Germany expressing your, your nationalism through like this hail and hearty pink cheeked sport. And so both brothers join the Nazi party in the very early 30s. So only weeks after Hitler is released from prison. Yikes. And they partner with the Hitler youth and begin making sports shoes 
and um, and basically profiting from the you know the Nazi interest in health and outdoorsmanship. I wonder if they're holding their nose like a lot of you know it's it's not like. German liberals at the time didn't know what Hitler was, or are these guys like true believers? Like this is the way forward for the country. Are they hopeful, or are they just trying to sell more exercise gear? Well, this comes up a lot later uh, after the war, in particular, because this gets adjudicated a lot, and I and it was a a big feature at the end of the war in the in the uh, Truth and Reconciliation around Nuremberg trials, uh, where. The U.S. Army and the United, you know, the the Allied attempt to bring um, Nazis to justice meant that there were all these, you know, local tribunals on these topics. But also, the Americans pretty quickly realized that if they were going to prosecute every Nazi in <laughs> every Germany, manufacturer, yeah. you know, it w- it wasn't going to work. And so, part of the Marshall Plan was to exonerate a lot of people that maybe should have done a little bit more. In terms of um, reparation for the for their crimes, but so, the sense is that th- that this was and 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 certainly the story that uh, that Adi told later was that yes, it was a, it was just a matter of expedience. He never was a true believer. The um, it was just it was a, good business, Michael. It was only business, right? Um, but they. And and there's some evidence in the in the sense that as he tried to get his shoes into the hands of sports people, um, Adi recognized and Rudolph recognized, I think, as the marketer, that the 1936 Olympics were going to be an incredible opportunity for them to get their shoes in front of the world, and. They should have put him on Jesse Owens, it turned out. And they did put him on Jesse Owens. Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah, they went to Jesse Owens and, and uh, as far as the story goes, silently handed him a pair of their sort of revolutionary uh, Gaeta shoes. And Jesse Owens wore them and wore them to victory. I, mean, so, I guess that's pretty good evidence that they're really just more interested in advancing their own business than they actually were in. Nazi ideology, if they if they're okay with everybody having the same shoes, yeah, uh, yeah. You kind of, I mean, it 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 was, um, it came into play after the war, um, the fact that they had supplied shoes to Jesse Owens because it was, it was a mitigating. A true believer would have kept their shoes just for the Aryan team. Yeah, exactly. Right. And somehow, uh, sneaking over and handing them to Jesse Owens didn't attract the attention of Hitler until after the fact. Ken, how are those underwear feeling? Feel great. I look great. Mine feel good. I, mine look good. Are yours, are yours Mac Weldon? My underwear are Mac Weldon. I'm wearing them right now. I wear them all the time. Um, they're coveted under, underpants in my social circles. 
Do you have people trying to steal them? Some kind of <clears throat> underwear hamburger? Everybody's always trying to steal my underpants. It's just one of the things I've, I've had to come to grips with. As That's because you threw them to the crowd like Tom Jones for some reason. That's years. right. I did, it, I, did it, I did it for too long, and now people come up to me on the street. They think that my underwear are, are fair game. And and they're Mac Weldon's. Yeah, you can replenish your supply. Yes, uh, at MacWeldon.com, and it's not just underwear, John. No, I know you like their uh, you like their their above the waist garments. I got hoodies and whatnot. Uh, they've got shorts, they've got polos, socks, got socks. I wear socks. You name it for any aspect of life. If you're for working, working out, out, for going out. There's really not a time of your day when you should not be wearing something Mac Weldon. Going to work, going to home, going on a date. Do people still go to work? Going to work in your home? Go to work. Sure. Even if they're going to work at home. You don't need pants for that, but... Mac Weldon has very, very comfortable pants that don't even feel like pants. They feel like soft. They feel soft like a squirrel. Yeah, it's the technology is, uh, you know, they've got their next generation high-tech fabrics. Uh, warm knit and dry knit and air knit. All the knits are represented here. Silver knit, 18-hour knit. What does that even mean? That it takes 18 hours to knit it or you can wear it for 18 hours? I think you can wear it for 18 hours. It's the it's the kind, if you're getting on a, uh, on a flight to Dubai I see. and you're thinking, I'm going to have to change my underwear three times on this flight. No. Nope. Just wear uh, Mack Weldon 18-hour underpants. And, uh, you know, buying extras because of all the undies you're throwing to fans mm-hmm. is easy with their loyalty program, Weldon Blue, where, you know, after your first order, you got free shipping for life. And then very quickly thereafter, 20% off every order for the first year. It's happened to me. I have, a, I have one of those mid-century, um, what are they called, dressers. That has big wide drawers, and I filled up a whole drawer with Mac Weldon underwear, and then I was like, "I got this other drawer. I got a second drawer." Started filling it up with Mac Weldon underwear. If you have not ordered from Mac Weldon, despite us harassing you about it so many times, now's the time. You, there's there's nothing to risk. If you don't like your first pair of undies, you can return it for a full refund, guaranteed, no questions asked. Twenty percent off your first order is something we'd like to offer you at MacWeldon.com slash Omnibus. All you have to do is enter the promo code Omnibus that allows them to track your purchase back to our show, which means... Free underwear for us. Super big high fives all around the enormous meeting table we sit at with the directors of MacWeldon every six months. That's MacWeldon.com slash Omnibus, and then enter promo code Omnibus for 20% off. MacWeldon, reinventing men's basics. Um, Adi was, uh, as part of his interest in in making shoes as a hobbyist and as an enthusiast, he actually went to um, the Footwear Technical College in Germany, which the FTC, w- which was a well in Germany, it's called the Schuhfachschule. Huh. So Schuhfachschule. There's like a national how to make shoes school. There was, and he uh, one of his great one of his one of his teachers was a man by the name of Franz Martz. And he was an expert in the construction of lasts, which are the kind of wood models that you build a shoe yeah. around. And Franz's daughter, Kathy, or Kathy, how do you pronounce that in German? Katja? Maybe short it's, for Katarina. So yeah, it probably Kat, is Katja. It's huh? Katja. Uh, Katja became Adi's wife in 1934. And she was, by all accounts, an outspoken and undaunted 
young woman. She was just a teenager when they married. But her introduction into the family became um, became kind of a, a big part of the story because she was a, a young woman who was fairly contentious. And even though the shoe company was having success, um, Christoph and Pauline and Adi and Rudy and both Adi and Rudy's wives and all five of their subsequent kids lived in one house together. <laughs> And uh, Katya did not get along. She's a troublemaker. She was a troublemaker. She was opinionated. She got involved in the business and wanted, you know, and, and her opinions and her uh, suggestions were taken seriously by Adi. And so uh, this is the story that Rudy tells later as he describes the causes of his estrangement from Adi. It does seem... Easy to scapegoat the the woman there and make her out to be the Yoko of Adidas. And there and and within the story, there's also a feeling of uh, uh, that the two wives, Rudy's wife and and Katya, also did not didn't get along. They just didn't get along, and and there was. But you know, I think a big part of it is that all these people are living in one house. Move out, move to another house. That that would be nice. They you can afford a little, it. They just need a little Levens round. Yeah, get a little. <laughs> <laughs> Get a little love nest somewhere. Come on, you got a new bride, like a couple of new kids. You don't want to live with grandma and grandpa. Presumably the business is doing okay. These are small towns too. It's not It's not clear why they all had to live in the family schloss, hmm. but that's how it, that's how it panned out. Uh, but the disputes between Rudy and Adie started before the war. Uh, there was just, I mean, your brother... Joined us at a baseball game the other day, and yeah, he, he seemed in, like a sweet guy. He was in town with us. He's probably listening to this right now. So, uh, do do you and your brother have any kind of? Uh, can you imagine a situation where you and he would become estranged? Is he is he somebody who would bring something? Who would say to you like, "I refuse to eat in in your kitchen anymore because you you don't have a separate set of plates for the." For the chocolates? I hope not, because we get along great. He's a sweet fellow. But he, he does have kind of some some dogmatic ideas. You know, he will, if he decides, you know, I don't, I don't do this, he, yeah. he will never do that again. He will never take such a vacation or... Uh, he, he's, a, he, has a, he has like a 5,000 CD collection, but he has very specific rules, you know. No, no matter how much he loves the artist, if the CD has fewer than nine tracks, I think it is, he will just not refuse to own it. it what if it's a 65 minute long record but only has nine tracks like even even worse you know six six long tracks that's just self-indulgent that's not what he wants oh just doesn't fit the collection he believes that a record is nine songs at least what if it's a nine song record but it's only 29 minutes long he has a minimum length too i think it might be like 38 minutes this is weird because this actually comes up in indie rock record label conversations what constitutes what makes a record more than an ep well sure there's a there's a the possibility of looking lazy. You're charging the same amount for the shorter musical selection. The first Long Winter's record only has nine songs, but there's a unlisted track. There's actually ten songs, and the track track is unlisted because we weren't sure about the copyright. It's a cover. We weren't sure who held the copyright, and we didn't want to deal with it, so we just put it on there without any any attribution. And so it's a 10-song record, but your brother would have looked at it on the shelf and thought it was a nine-song record. Mm, no, he would know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of indie rocks. So but you don't would. think he would stop being your friend or, or uh, 
become estranged from you if you were like, I have a record collection of only 29 <laughs> if I bought a, records. a Roxy Music album that only had 32 <laughs> minutes of music on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> no, he would overlook that. We, we actually, uh, we get along great. We have a lot of interests in common. So it's, we're, it's never, there's nothing strained between us. But, you know, I can see how family members do fall out, you know, especially when they can, when they're inflexible. When one makes it a, just a kind of a, a, a rule of life that I'm not going to put up with your crap anymore. And for many people, that's a healthy decision. Right. In the case of these two brothers, Rudy and Adi, they, uh, there was a lot of contentiousness, um, in the, and, and it takes, I think, mostly the form that Adi's the youngest brother, but clearly the inspired one. And uh, with his wife, Katya, believes, he believes and they believed that he was the founder of the company and should be in charge. And Rudy seems much more um, like a, a, a glad hander and also believed that as the older brother, it should be, mm. although the company founded yeah. by his younger brother, uh, that he should be the one in charge, just a primogeniture, primogeniture, and that was probably even more pronounced then. The yeah. idea that you know the family business belongs to the oldest child, and there seems to be some parental favoritism. Oh. Uh, Paulina or Pauline ended up in the long run um, siding with Rudy. Does each parent have a favorite? This is always fun. It seem it seems like they did, although Kristoff uh, seems like he may have stayed above the fray. But going into the war, there was I mean they're both members of the Nazi Party, but weirdly That's nice that they have that to talk about. Well, and I think their older brother too, Fritz, also joined. Um, it's good to have common interests. It is. It is. It's nice. But and I think it brought uh, Nazism brought the family together. For whatever else you can say about Nazism. But going into the war, there was not uh, – you would expect that the German war machine would say, let's convert your – Yeah, make some boots. Yeah, factory to some cool, you know, uh, if not like marching boots, then cool commando like Spider-Man boots. But that turned out not to be the case. And they – Maybe that um, made the difference in the war. Maybe if – If they had made Adidas Spider-Man boots. Germans had just had Adidas boots. They certainly had um, all day. I dream Bayer about aspirin. All day I dream about Sudetenland. <laughs> uh, they uh, it turned out that that Rudolf was conscripted, and the company was kind of shut down, and uh, machines were moved in, and it was put into it was put to work as a manufacturing plant for you know initially for Woojits and and Flibbitigibbets. The older kid got. Drafted, but not the, the younger. The older kid got drafted and went into what, after the war, was suggested was kind of a um, like an SS style intelligence unit. Yikes. Although all of this, again, sort of disputed by conflicting uh, testimony at the end of the war. Eventually, Adi uh, retools the factory and the Adidas factory. Or what would soon be Adidas, but the uh, the the Gata factory starts manufacturing bazookas. Uh, <laughs> Can you use the same machines? Do you think Phil Knight will ever discover that he could just turn his sneaker machines around and make bazookas? And make bazookas. The bazooka had not bazooka was an American invention, and it was only when they started capturing American bazookas that they reverse engineered them, mm -hmm. and uh, and so you know Adi was 
was in the bazooking making bazooka making business the bazooking making business it's, it's, no it's bazooking that's the <laughs> bazooking they, they spent the word bazooking they ended up making almost a hundred thousand bazookas before the end of the war wow but at the end of the war there was a lot of contention rudy was captured um the uh the american tanks rolled in and w- rolled into where they rolled into, into what, to what was the name of the place uh, they rolled into? They rolled into <laughs> here's a Ginnerach, uh, and there's this uh, there's this kind of dramatic story that the tanks rolled into the town and they were just kind of like pointing their cannons at anything that looked like a part of the war effort and just blowing up buildings run after are the these other. Russians where's this town oh, these are Americans because okay, this oh, is okay. Bavaria oh, okay uh, at which point uh, Katya ran out and stood like a like a uh, like Tiananmen Square, mm-hmm. stood in front of a tank and said, no, 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 don't destroy the... Don't destroy our bazooka factory. I mean, <laughs> shoe plant. Don't destroy our, our shoe plant because we are innocent and I think might have even said, we gave shoes to Jesse Owens in the 36 Olympics. And somehow the American soldiers uh, didn't destroy the factory, turned their cannons away and, and went on down the road destroying other factories. Wow. Uh, and the American every other factory is like, uh, uh, <laughs> we gave some of these crackers to Jesse Owens. He said they were mm good. We gave some of these bazookas to <laughs> to uh, Jesse Owens. Holy cow! Uh, they actually, I guess, um, billeted the American officers uh, there in in Schloss uh, Dessler. They know which side their pretzels buttered on. These guys. That's right. And there were. Several so so then there's a, there's this kind of uh, you know the 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 in the Nuremberg fashion like everybody's got a, a tone or at least account for their performance in the war and there's all this record uh, public record of them all being Nazis and public facing and making Nazis. bazookas for the war yeah and and Rudy actually being you know arguably a uh, Zonderkommando or, or yeah. you know, a, like a bad actor. He's got a black leather jacket in the closet. But they make the case that they are, you know, kind of essential to the, um, you know, sh- shoes being a, a, a non-political thing. You know, they're kind of, uh, they're ready to play a part in the rebuilding of Germany. And eventually the Americans realize we can't prosecute every Nazi in this country. And they, and they. Everybody was making something for the war machine. Yeah. Right. And so they, you know, they absolve them of their involvement, but the damage between Adi and Rudy is done. And part of it was during these, uh, during these trials, they kind of denounced one another, actually did denounce one another. And, um, you know, and Adi said, Rudy was a, was a bad Nazi. And Rudy said, he was making bazookas. Are you kidding me? His name's literally Adolf. And the Americans couldn't decide who to believe. So they... Let them both go. It's pretty smart. They let them both go. At which point, their shoe company, they decided to split in half. Uh, Rudy was going to leave. One does left shoes, one does right shoes. <laughs> if only. Uh, Rudy and Adi, the, the way that they worked it out was that the people that were in sales and marketing and administration, they they they... they they allowed their employees to pick who they went with. Oh, interesting. And sales, marketing, and administration all went with Rudy because they worked yeah. with him and trusted him and liked him. And all of the engineers and manufacturing people stayed with Adi. And that was the larger portion of the company. 
Adi kept the original factory, and Rudy went across the river in the town of Herzogenerach. Herzogen, didn't you Herzogenerach. say? I think you said like Herzogenerach. You really hit the O before. Herzogenerach. <laughs> oh, just saying it is making me cough. Uh, right through the center of Herzogenerach is the river Arach, and... Rudy took his people across the river and built a new factory. It's very biblical. Oh, no, I'm sorry. There were two factories that were that were part of this uh, this company. Oh, okay. And Rudy took the South Factory, and Adi kept the North Factory. This is a Steinbeck novel. These two brothers fighting, and one of them crosses the river with his people, shaking his fist. Yep. And but they stayed in this. It's interesting. They stayed in the same town. The just same as rivals and uh, and uh, what. Uh, bitter, bitter enemies, embittered brothers. Yeah, um, they uh, Rudy initially called his shoes uh, Ruda, sure, short for Rudy Dessler. And it was the other was called, it was called Gata originally, right? Gata originally. Uh, Adi went from uh, Adi called the shoes Adas, but there was already a brand of children's shoes called Adas, so he just put an I and you know. Adidas. Adidasler. Uh, and and the uh, the evolution of Ruda to Puma was kind of just I mean Puma just is a is a badass cat, whereas Ruda just sounds like, you know, somebody's like, is, is this the first time aunt. we're revealing that Rudy's shoes be, go on to become Puma? Ruda became Puma. Mm. Yeah, Rudy Rudy shoes. Rudy, Rudy yeah. Rudy do. Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity. And the two companies began what became a, uh, a a rivalry throughout the 20th century, and a rivalry where it basically uh, divided the town. Anyone who lived on the south side of town also worked in Rudy's factory and only wore Puma shoes, and anyone who lived north of the river worked north of the river and wore Adidas. This is insane. It's and, a it's a company town, but it's divided between two companies that are just totally estranged and hate each other. And it was and it was a not just a neighborhood thing, but a family thing. Your if your father worked for Adidas, you worked for Adidas. It never would occur to you to wear a Puma shoe. If there are people that you know that said that you would never mention the name of the. Of the uh, the rival across the river. Oh, you can't even say it. And the town was called, became nicknamed the town of Bent Necks because the first thing you did was look at someone's shoes and that would tell you everything about it's, them. It is literally gang colors. Yeah. So you're walking around, you know, uh, you, you can't really interact in the town without looking down first. So the town of Bent Necks became its... its um, well, it's a nickname, and I think I think only recently it stopped being kind of known that way in the region. Uh, the their success throughout the fifties and sixties was very connected to sport. The first World Cup after the war, the Germans weren't allowed to participate in. In nineteen fifty, there was still you know Germany was still an occupied country. And the and you, you, know, you did a very naughty yeah. genocide. You cannot be in the world. You're Cut. not allowed to play football. But by '54, there was a kind of rehabilitation happening. West Germany, I think everybody saw that trying to keep the Germans beaten down didn't work after World War One, and maybe the way to do it after World War Two is just get them back in 
in the game um, and and turn them into healthy, happy capitalists. Is that still a unified German team, or is it a, it's a West German and an East German team, I guess? Uh, at the time, this would have been the West German team. They were allowed into the 1954 World Cup, and Adidas became the official shoe of the German team. Now, both Adi and Rudy were really at the forefront of the idea of sports marketing. And Rudy was really good at it, but Adi had all these friendships and relationships connections to people in sport um, because he was making the shoes and was, uh, and people came to him to find out about the shoes. Uh, the coach of the West German team was a man named Sepp Herberger and Sepp had also been a Nazi, but that wasn't what they had in common. What they had in common was a love of shoes and so Sepp um, became a like a, a he was the one that chose Adidas to be uh, the shoes of the German team. And from that from 1954 all the way into the late 70s, the competition between the brothers had a lot to do with you know what what evolved into sports marketing, um, which, assume, which assume, wasn't a thing. I assume Adidas had a jump in the shoe game since they actually had all the real engineers and designers working for it. They had better and better shoes, right? But Seth knows what he's doing. But Rudy was a better marketer. And in the end, um, it was at the 1970 World Cup that Rudy got Pele into Pumas. Mm. And as part of the contract, Pele, at the start of the game, ran out onto the pitch and held his hand up to the referee who was about to blow the whistle to start the game and bent down and tied his shoes on camera in front of, you know, a billion people watching the world cup. And this was like a, a little, uh, little buzz marketing that Rudy came up with. Must've been controversial at the time. Like now it's just commonplace that there will be sneaker wars as part of every professional sport. I think, I think that it was only later revealed to be, uh, oh. it was just like, Oh, hang on. I've got to tie my shoes. Got to tie my Pumas. And so the camera pans down to, you know, to capture Pele. They're tying his shoes and it's, it's just up to you. If you want to see what shoes he's wearing, if you want to buy those for yourself, you, gotta, you don't have to bend your neck if the camera's bending it for you. But it is true that, um, that Adidas always had the lead in terms of, of technological innovation and they always were the biggest company. And it, it actually was Adi's son, Horst Dossler, who really took sports marketing to the next level. Um, and in the 1970s began aggressively pursuing, uh, the athlete endorsements and not just athlete endorsements, but sports, um, sponsorships. So he was responsible for Coca-Cola being the supporter of the 1980 or the 1976 Olympics. Oh, wow. So he got into the game, uh, you know, outside of Adidas entirely. And, that's been so good for sports to have big business in it. Thank you, uh, Horst. And Horst was the first one, I, I, uh, they say, the first one to make the Olympics profitable. Um, and Horst uh, sadly died at a young age. And by young age, I mean my age. Um and and both of the brothers, the older brothers, died in the in the late 1970s. That did not end the feud um, because it had become generational, and so throughout the 80s and 90s, there was still this tremendous 
you know, personal animosity and personal desi- uh, divide within the city. It's it's just crazy. It would be like if McDonald's and Burger King were both headquartered in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, or just some little tiny place. I, I don't know. Are there two American companies that really hate each other? Coke and Pepsi are both in Atlanta. Yeah, right. Across the river from one another. Yeah. Um, Adidas did build a big factory plant in Portland, Oregon, and their headquarters is just right down the either right up or right down the hill from Nike. You know, that happens a lot. Like down the hill. It's, you see it in Seattle with all the big tech companies just wanting to fire a shot across Amazon's about, we're not going to not have an office in Seattle. So Google and whoever will put in offices just right next to Amazon as if to say, yeah. we're here too. We're here too. We're going to go down to, we're going to make the Vivace coffee as crowded as possible so you can't enjoy it. <laughs> the three-stripe logo was, I think, a big part of how Adidas was instantly recognizable, you know, everywhere they appeared. Where, where did the stripe start? The stripe logo, actually, I, I think Adidas came up with it, or Adi came up with it independently, but it actually had been patented by the Finnish sports company, Carhu, which you see, still see. Their logo now is a is like a, uh, like a, uh, a bear on the prowl, mm-hmm. and they make all kinds of sports gear, but they had the copyright on, or the trademark of the three stripes. And Adidas bought it from them, kind of like Manhattan Island. They gave them some beads and and two bottles of Aquavit. Was that kind of their invention, like an easy-to-recognize logo on on athletic gear? I mean, they make shoes, too. And I yeah. think um, I think that the, uh, that the Adidas stripes came about as a result of there were already straps in those locations. And Adi was like, well, why don't we make the straps a different color? And people will be able to see it. And it was only... When they discovered that no, that was a, that was, that copyright was already held. It's so funny that it would have to. Be, of course, it makes sense. You know, most yeah. kinds of shoes to this day do not have big logos on them. When I wear a pair of loafers, it doesn't have a big uh, uh, business school designed logo on the side. Right, but you could have a pair of loafers that had a different, like a signature color of laces. Sure, the yellow laces of yeah. Preppy Loafer Company. It just seems so crazy to imagine a world where athletic shoes did not have some huge. Uh, instantly identifiable symbolar color scheme. What's nuts about Herzogenrach, Herzogenrach, we'll just say it differently every time, and then, then no one can complain, um, is that the whole town was branded this way. The manhole <laughs> covers on either no. side had the logos on it. <laughs> the, you know, this, this seems like they're almost embracing it as kind of a, 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 a fun local oddity. That w- it would have been great if it was fun, but, but it not. wasn't fun. It was like it was like Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland. It, um, so it's like a it's a it's it was a Belfastian to put to put a different symbol on different utilities. Yeah, they sponsored two separate football clubs from the town, uh, and it was only in the nineties. And I think uh, they credited the IPO. Adidas only had an IPO in nineteen ninety five, and that was. The end of family control of the of the the company. Yeah. Um, there were there were certainly Desslers still involved, uh, and they were the grandchildren of the Desslers who had grown up not knowing their cousins, not allowed to wow. uh, to to fraternize, never having met them. Um, but gradually, with the you know with the passings of the generations and the fact that both companies became massive global conglomerates. Um, at at present, Adidas has fifty seven thousand employees and twenty one billion euros a year. 
uh, in earnings. Puma employs 13,000 people and has 5.5 billion euros um, in revenue. But they're all still headquartered just a few miles from each other? Headquartered there? literally across the river from one another. Uh, now, it's still true that everyone in the town wears one or the other. You would almost never find anyone that um, that wore clothes across the, that crossed the stream, um, except now it's considered good-natured. Except the mayor, uh, a man interestingly named German Hawker. German Hawker? German Hawker <laughs> is the mayor. Uh, he, it's a little on the nose. He makes a point, although he grew up, I think, in Puma, on the Puma side. He makes a point to always wear uh, an item from both companies whenever he does a public appearance as a, as a way of, you know, bringing peace to the Valley. Is there a version of that uh, here on the omnibus between the two of us? Is there a way that someone could express? Cause there are a lot, there's a lot of fan loyalty. People are Ken fans. People are John fans. Although futurelings tend to be pretty ecumenical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They can ecumenic all day. Is there, is there a way that a futureling could, uh, could, could heal the wounds by, by wearing, an item that was identifiable with each of us. Yeah, you could wear like a a Filson. Uh, wait, do they make flannel stuff? They just make leather yeah. goods. No, they make flannel. You could stuff, wear a yes. Filson shirt with a pocket protector in it, <laughs> and that's how you bring the piece back to Omnibus. And that concludes the town of Bent Necks, entry one three two three dot SS zero seven zero one. Oh, SS. That's I didn't hmm, even notice how weird. appropriate that was. Certificate Sketchy. number 31961 in the omnibus. Now, as you know, probably uh, you've heard this before. Uh, in your time, uh, global information networks have collapsed, but we lived on ours. I'll tell mm, you what. I once did, but I, not now. I hated to look up from my screen and see what was going on in real life. I was a, I was a real screenager, as we say. Lol. Did uh, you see my new phone? It's as big as a paperback book. Look I at that thing. I don't like the big phones. No, I, I keep buying the smallest phone Apple makes, and they keep making the smallest phone bigger and bigger. I know. Well, you know, I'm a big man, and uh, I watch a lot of porn. So, yeah, I'm going to have the big phone. Sure. <laughs> yeah, if you want to show your allegiance to John, just buy the T-shirt that says, I'm a big man, and I watch a lot of porn. <laughs> you can wear that everywhere. You can wear that to church. Uh as a result, in our time, we were at the Om- at Omnibus Project uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. I'm at Ken Jennings. John is at John Roderick. Uh, that's principally on his own Patreon. The real Patreon, the one true Omnibus Patreon, you can find at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. If you enjoy the show and wish to support it, uh, the show only exists um, through the uh, devotion and generosity of uh, a small coterie of listeners, maybe mm-hmm. maybe one in one in twenty or one in twenty five. There's some room to grow there. There is a lot of room to grow, and I think you know when we when we talk about the Patreon, we're communicating to that to that group that's on the fence, that group that feels like you know I've been meaning to support, 
uh, Ken and John on Patreon, but I haven't gotten around to it. Or we're not talking to you who already support. Yep, we we love you. We're we not talking you. to you who have already decided not to because you're awful freeloaders. Yeah, we're we're hoping to reach that the we're you reaching know, the swing voter. Yeah, the uh, the soft middle who says, you know, I just have never gotten around to that, or it seems hard to sign up. Or I always hear them talking about it on the show, but then when I'm in front of a computer, I forget. Yeah, I could give them five bucks a month. What is that? That's hardly anything. I spend more than that on gum. And I get a lot more enjoyment out of Omnibus than I do out of a piece of gum, let me tell you. Well, it's I mean, for you. A, a piece of gum costs more than less than $5 a month. It would have to be the joint, the, the aggregate happiness you get from all your monthly gum chewing, which could total upwards of $5, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But how good can that be? Like if you, to, if you total each stick of gum you chew, it's still, it's still a pretty mild pleasure. Nothing like the deep insights and belly laughs that come from each and every hour of Omnibus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, uh, so yeah, go to patreon.com slash Omnibus Project and acquaint yourself with some of the benefits that come with uh, membership. You can find other like-minded listeners uh, by searching for the Futurelings on Facebook and Reddit and elsewhere. You can email us your objections to anything we said about National Socialism, which we oppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, send that to the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. I will clarify by responding to all of these objections by saying John and I, in fact, oppose National Socialism. We are against Nazism, not just now, but since the dawn of the show. Uh, Even before. What about the fashion? Do you like the long coats? No. We don't like anything about it. No, there's nothing. I can't. I can't support any. That's why I don't wear Hugo Boss. We don't like the. We don't like Volkswagen. I never take. I we never don't take like Adidas aspirin. or Puma. Nope. Nope. I we only wear American shoes. We don't like Siemens. No. Nope. Uh, uh, <laughs> we do not like them on a train. We do not like them on a plane. <laughs> we don't like uh, Mercedes Benz or little, Porsche. A little narrow mustache, no. even on the other guy from Sparks. If you gave, well, he's pretty cool. But if you gave me a Porsche, I would drive it, but a, but under duress. I would drive it just into a wall Aww. to show my uh, disdain. No, no, no. For but its I'm, fine German workmanship. But I very much support the uh, the the great works of the nation of West Germany and now the unified Deutschland. Where uh, there's no one really alive anymore that was a Nazi, or hardly any, and everyone else is newly born. The uh, yeah, you can't cast Christopher Plummer or Max von Sydow in your movies anymore to play the old Nazi guy because not only are they dead, all the old Nazis would be dead. That's right. So you have to. It's it has to. Your new movie has to have the sons of Uruguayan Nazis. And sure, why don't actually we could write that screenplay in an hour or depressingly any of the modern uh, white supremacist options? Yeah, right. Any anybody that listens to political talk radio, we you could also send physical items, uh, although not German made ones apparently, to the Omnibus Project uh, at our PO box, PO box five five seven four four, Shoreline, Washington nine eight one five five. I had forgotten that we received this postcard from Maine. It's postmarked from New Orleans. But it's from Acadia National Park. So apparently, one of the um, one of the original Acadians has returned to Louisiana <laughs> to send us this postcard. Uh, and although the front shows the high surf pounding on otter cliffs on the main coast, the uh, postcard itself has only this cryptic message: "Signaterra fish poisoning." Huh? Uh, in the Bahamas and through the West Indies. Fishes on the steep windward side of a small island may be highly toxic, while those on the shallow leeward side may be perfectly edible. 
No signature, no explanation. Wow, okay. Just a seafood tip from the West Indies. <laughs> it's addressed to us, but if you, it's, the address is taped on, and if you lift it up, this was actually headed to Gainesville, Florida. Somebody in, somebody in Gainesville was about to get this seafood-related warning. Why did we? Why did our names get taped over? This gets weirder and weirder all the time. This is my favorite postcard. But wait, is there a name no. of the people in Gainesboro? No, it's that's also just an address from, from Gainesville, Florida. But in the same handwriting as the rest of the... Yes, it's the same. Maybe it was a postcard that was going to be used as a vacation postcard to friends in Florida, and then uh, it got addressed but not written on, and when it got repurposed as an omnibus postcard, it uh, needed this little leaflet taped on the top. Does it look like it's been... Uh, canceled by the post office, not canceled by Twitter, uh, more than once? Is it possible that this was sent a long time ago and someone has repurposed it? I think it's only been canceled once. Wow. Uh, just like me? Just like so many of us. The, oh, just like you. That's right. The uh, So, yeah, uh, there's a... Maybe that's a suggestion for a show on why... Uh, why you should only eat fish from the windward... From, from the leeward sides of the of the Caribbean? Of the Antilles? I'm not sure. But thank you, Anonymous Sender. Please let us know. Let us know if you... We would love to credit you for sending us this mysterious uh, postcard. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. Providence allows. We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omni.